0: Coming up on Life as a Festival. Scary stuff comes up. Even paranoid stuff comes up. You're like, oh, it's the paranoid story thing. Okay, don't make any big decisions. Don't think about it too much. Look at other details. Maybe return to the body. Maybe move in a different way. And, you know, sooner or later, it kind of shakes off. So that kind of ability to be in, but not entirely of, to move through experience, the kind of dance between perspectives. It's a subtle art, but without it, it's so easy to get trapped in a lot of these dimensions, whether they're big scenarios like the QAnon or just sort of ordinary delusions that ultimately prevent you from really wrestling with the difficulties of our time and of ourselves. And, if there's not any of that grit in there, if you're just like the ascension light side of things, you're not getting to the heart of it. It's it's so easy to to get spun out in your own stories.
1: My name is Amon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Hello, my friends and fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Well, we have a new administration in the White House, and it may feel like it's time to put behind us our fears of the specter of mobs swarming in the Capitol and strange people with Viking headdresses seeming to carry a dark psychedelic message from the far right. But alas, I fear that conspirituality is still with us and may be for a long time. So last summer, I did a podcast called Skeptical Thinking for Spiritual People that was in response to the growing and unnerving trend of new age hippies, burners, psychedelic folk that seemed to be falling prey to pretty ridiculous conspiracy theories. And um, just a few weeks ago, we saw that in a very symbolic flourish with the so-called QAnon shaman in the Senate chamber. And I felt it was important, considering that for myself and many of the folks listening to this podcast, believe in the power of psychedelic healing and transcendence through ceremony and shamanism, I felt that it was incumbent to address this growing trend of conspirituality. And I'm sure it's probably already on your radar. But if it's not, I'd like to, as a way of introducing today's podcast, read a piece from Jules Evans, who wrote um, a Medium article called Conspirituality, the Overlap Between the New Age and Conspiracy Beliefs. And I read this over the summer and found it very helpful. So as a way of introducing the topic today, I'd just like to read a section from that article that kind of explains the intersection of ecstatic globalism and paranoid conspiracy. He writes, I want to compare two forms of mystical experience. The first is a sort of extroverted, euphoric, mystical experience. Everything is connected. I am synchronicitously drawn to helpers and allies. The universe is carrying us forward to a wonderful climactic transformation, i.e. the rapture, the omega point, the paradigm shift. And we are the divine warriors of light appointed by God, the universe, to manifest this glorious new phase shift in human history. The second, however, is a paranoid bad trip version of the euphoric good trip. Everything is connected. There is a secret order being revealed to me, but I'm not part of it. It is an evil demonic order and it is trying to control me and everyone else. They have a grand plan and it is taking shape now. But perhaps I and one or two others can wake up to this grand plan and expose it or at least hide from it. The first trip is a euphoric ego expansion. I am God. I am the cosmic universe evolving. And the second is a paranoid ego persecution the universe is controlled by evil demons who are against me. In both, the individual awakens to this hidden reality. But in the first, they are a superpowered initiate in the hidden order and a catalyst for transformation. In the second, they are a vulnerable and disempowered exposer of the powerful hidden order. They are two sides of the same coin, two sides in the same game. In both, the ego is part of a grand cosmic drama. In the first, they are the divine appointed catalyst for phase shift. In the second, they are the heroic exposers of the hidden order. So I don't know about you, but I love the idea that everything is connected and I am drawn to these helpers and allies and the universe is carrying us forward. I have thought that myself, but we must be so careful in our mystical transformational experiences that we carry good mental hygiene And so today on the show, I'm inviting back a previous guest, my friend Eric Davis, to help us inoculate ourselves against the lure of conspirituality and its various rabbit holes. So Eric Davis was on the podcast number 23, and on that show, we extolled the virtues of weirdness in part to promote his book, High Weirdness, about psychedelics in the 70s. And he has graciously agreed to return to the show to provide an inoculation against this trend of conspirituality. So on the program, we talk about metaphysical mud um, that can sometimes flow through these psychedelic experiences. And Eric and I both acknowledge the ethical responsibility that we have to help foster discernment in psychedelic communities and how we can protect ourselves by nurturing what he calls an inner superhero team. We talk about how we recognize our own vulnerabilities and how to practice something he calls withering self-observation. And finally... Eric and I discuss the evolution of the philosophy of this show, Life as a Festival, for these darker times. And we speak to Pythagoras and the Stoics in their view of Life as a Festival. So Eric is a very sought-after speaker, writer, and thinker in the psychedelic realm. He is the author of Technosis and High Weirdness. And this is his second time on the show. I'm so happy to have him back. And finally, Eric is the author of the Burning Shore Substack, and I highly recommend subscribing to it. I quote it at the beginning of the podcast. Finally, before we start, I just want to thank everyone who has contributed to the Life is a Festival survey. This is so helpful for me because it lets me know who's listening and how I can better tailor this content to your needs and desires and hopes and dreams. And so it takes four minutes. And you can get to that. It's at bit.ly, it's a bit.ly link, and that's slash festival dash survey. So I would be so grateful if you took a little bit of your time to tell me about this show and how it can improve. So now I give you my friend Eric Davis as we explore the murky realms of Conspirituality. <laughs> We'll just get everything started, although I want to have a little moment to say hi to you before we're actually, it's going to be on the podcast, but we'll just get everything started since we're already here.
0: No, no, that's good. I'm I'm making, I'm having my little uh, smoothie too, so I, we can have a, we can have a little hangout moment little here. A little hang moment in uh,
1: San Francisco, a place that I woke up this morning missing terribly. Although I'm glad I'm not in the U.S. right now. I just found myself really missing San Francisco. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's uh it's pretty weird here. Yeah,
1: yeah. It seems weird. I mean, if we start if you start using that word, you know we're already we're already doing the podcast. Start saying the word weird.
0: Oh yeah. Do Do you have a? I can't couldn't, can't remember how much we talked about what what this is about. Like what what you want to focus on or.
1: Yeah. Well. So I basically, you know, like everyone else, I was like, wow this is really the time to talk about conspirituality. And considering my audience, I feel that I have a responsibility to speak about it more than I did in the summer. So in the summer, I did a, a podcast called Skeptical Thinking for Spiritual People with a member of the Swedish Skeptics Society when that whole pandemic thing was going around. And I wanted to like put something out to my audience. And I feel like now with the advent of the QAnon shaman, it's really important to talk about this with people who are a bit more Pollyanna about their psychedelic healing and transformation. And I also felt like I really wanted to talk to you about it because our last podcast, we were extolling the virtues of weirdness. And I've 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 actually, since that time, I've started working with a psychedelic medicine company to promote Mm -hmm. psychedelics as medicine and all the while i have this idea well psychedelics are in a sense they're like more than medicine they're weird and weird is good and then all of a sudden it's come kind of like the truck has come crashing through the wall of weird isn't necessarily good (laughs) um and i was reading your most recent burning shore and i love the way you write man i really really (laughs) like the way you write
0: Thanks for saying that. I, I work hard at it, and it's, it's not always easy. Yeah, so. I, can, I can imagine.
1: I feel like we're setting the stage in a nice way, so I feel like we kind of are starting. We're going to go wherever we want to go today, and I have no expectations that you and I are going to solve conspirituality. I don't need a resolution here. I just wanted to talk to someone with your mind. Really, I want to keep the f- weird, but I want to protect... the the psychedelic users who have been sold a bill of goods that says this is simply a matter of ascension and anything that you experience in your trip is part of your elevation to higher consciousness because clearly that's not the case. And so I want to talk to you to kind of parse that out a little bit and I also just want the poetry. I'm less interested in the resolution but I want to have a poetic conversation about the state we find ourselves in. And as my final piece of teeing this all up, just so that if our listener is not familiar with your writing and hasn't heard you on the previous podcast, I just want to read something from Burning Shore. And so Burning Shore is your Substack. It is a subscribable newsletter of your work. And you recently acknowledged the advent of the QAnon shaman. And what you say here is, what I want to linger with now is the sheer frightening weirdness Of this eruption of the American id. On January 6th, it seems that some of the retaining wall of political ontology had collapsed. Alongside the shocking violence, we also witnessed a dark tide of metaphysical mud, pressurized by trance states, paranoia, and online feedback loops, erupt upon the decorous stage sets of American statecraft. And I wanted to read that just in part because I love the way you write, but also this idea of a dark tide of metaphysical mud. And I want to talk about the metaphysical mud today. I'm sure we'll talk about your book, High Weirdness and Psychedelics in the 70s. We can go in all sorts of places, but I want to get into that metaphysical mud because it's, it's scary. And the idea that psychedelics are all rainbow personal growth is so clearly not the case. So with yeah. that long preamble... Eric Davis, welcome back to Life is a Festival.
0: Hey, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I've, I've done a lot of podcasts, and I still remember the one, the one we did very clearly that was a lot of fun. It was a different era. I know. We in person I know. San Francisco. <laughs> in
1: my home in San Francisco in 2019. Yeah. It was episode 23, and we were speaking about your book, High Weirdness, which is about the weird psychedelic experience of the 70s. And actually, on that show, you talked about how the '70s era was similar to now, in that after the halcyon days of the '60s, when we were going to you know levitate the Pentagon and put you know flowers and guns, and then everything was going to be honky dory, there was this crashing disillusionment that created a lot of weirdness and on that podcast, you talked about how that was similar to now, and it has <laughs> it has only accelerated
0: yeah, since we spoke no. last, and the parent, the paranoia as well. But let's let's stay. Like, if I, I like this invitation to stay with the poetics, and so I'm going to pick up. There's a there's an echo embedded in that phrase, metaphysical mud, that comes from Freud and a conversation that a famous conversation between Freud and Jung. I believe that's where it happened, where. Freud uses this phrase of the black mud of occultism. And so he's talking about doing work with the mind, digging into memories, digging into dreams, digging into the kind of raw material that is also used or becomes part of occult experience. And though they're not talking about it, psychedelic experience as well. And So Freud had a very kind of negative idea of the occult. And I just, there's something about that image of the kind of muddiness of this kind of thick goo. And, you know, I feel that as someone who's been reading this kind of stuff for a long time, where like there's amazing, beautiful, crystalline images and ideas in this stuff, but then it can just go, it gets a little bit too far, too feverish, too heavy, too muddy in the sense of unclear. Um, Like you can get to a place where everything is symbolizing everything else or it's all coming together or, you know, that the pattern recognition goes into into overdrive. And, you know, so, of course, Jung had a very different approach, even though he was, he was very much inspired by Freud's practice and in some ways started out in a very similar kind of mode. He ended up going much more deeply into a kind of occult a, a approach, although he didn't do, he wasn't like a practicing occultist exactly. But he, you know, it was, he was a much more positive zone. in a lot of ways, modern psychedelic culture comes out of a kind of Jungian approach where you're like, you're looking for the archetypes, you're, you accept these other worlds, the the worlds of symbolism, the worlds of ancient mythology, and they have something for us. And we go on a hero's journey through the other realms. And so so I think it's sometimes important to remember that, that's, that while that can be part of people's experiences, there is some metaphysical mud in the picture. And we get into this place about discernment. And it's it's really tough because it's really hard to teach discernment in a lot of ways. Like people get to it in their own ways. It has something to do with upbringing, it has something to do with temperament, something to do probably with relationship with parents and early schooling, but without discernment, which we can think of in terms of skepticism, of moving into different perspectives being able to move between different perspectives, other things to say about about discernment. But without it, it's very easy, especially now, to get lost. Because now, everyone's telling you everything. You know, it's not very hard to resonate with some idea somewhere because in every domain of discussion of ideas about politics about medicine about god about psychedelics about spirituality in every domain there's somebody hustling a story and they're resonating and they're creating feedback loops and there's groups of them and some of them are 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 earnest if deluded some of them are canny and hey who cares i'm just gonna keep the story going because it's it's, you know, I'm getting more hits. I'm getting more attention. And then people who are, who, you know, just get caught up in it. It's fun or they get caught up in it and it triggers some deep emotional uh, thing. And then it's, there you go. There you're in it. Well,
1: and it's, it's also the gasoline of personal brand building and everyone's need to be seen and have that attention is I think a really key aspect too. like when we're talking about this guy, Jacob Chansley, the so-called QAnon shaman and how he was kind of putting out a lot of signals and putting out a lot of like energy about who he was and who his beliefs were but when he found his way to QAnon he actually had a stage where people were were listening to him and so there's this you know there's, there's all this mud of, and noise and how can we find what's true and then we're simultaneously seeking belonging. We really want to be part of something but we also want to be the heroes, we want to be elevated, we want people to listen to us. So it's not just that the echo chamber is particularly echoey, it's that everybody is shouting louder and louder and louder for their own personal needs and often the case is that's just about our desire to feel connected and feel good and feel heard and and think of ourselves as success. So it's such a pressure cooker of bad ideas or at least confusing ideas.
0: Yeah, and it definitely drives towards extremes. I mean, we all we all should know by now about the problems with let's say YouTube YouTube algorithms that have they've, they've learned that, you know, you provide more extreme material and people are more likely to go down those rabbit holes because of the extremity. So people who are just looking at middle-of-the-road politics will start getting offered videos that are more and more conspiratorial or or manichaean or end of the world. But that's not just happening in terms of the algorithms. It's also what you're talking about here, where you're looking, you're lonely, you're looking for something, you're on Twitter, you're just kind of putting random ideas and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And then somebody says something, you know, about vaccines, and then you like, kind of start questioning it, and you notice you get more positive feedback. And so you can get, you know, sort of drawn into these communities. And the community is already defining itself in a kind of conversion, like a religious way. And I'll talk about that more in a second, where there's an inside and an outside, an us and a them. So There's more pressure on the distinction between us and them. And so as you become one of us, you are embraced by this whole world in a way that before you were just sort of an anonymous person kind of poking around, drifting through the the metaverse not really getting that much necessarily if you didn't have a really strong identity there. And suddenly all you had to do is follow a few ideas, a few things that you distrust, maybe you've always kind of distrusted them, or not liked vaccines, or whatever the thing was. But as soon as you make that switch, suddenly you're embraced. And there's so much social pressure and so many social rewards. for. So that's from the side of people who are just following along. And then that's made even worse by what you're talking about, which is that the whole system is set up now to build your personal brand and to do it in an adventitious way, where you're like navigating, like where are the hot points? Oh, that one works. I'm going to keep going on that. And even I do that. Like, you know, my, we're doing it
1: now. We're doing it now. We're yeah, talking we're doing about it now. <laughs> like consp-
0: here we are. We're doing conspirituality. I've done. I you know. I put out high weirdness. And I thought we'd pop. I probably mostly talk about Philip K. Dick and Terrence McKenna, and I mostly ended up talking about Robert Anton Wilson because he did so much stuff with, with well, conspirituality, with like playing with occultism and conspiracy and psychedelics, and and because that was so obviously what was kind of the backdrop. I ended up talking mostly about that, and then we and then we went forward, and I started riffing on the the you know the um, QAnon and its relationship to weirdness and da da da. da. And, you know, so I've done a lot of these discussions, but now I feel absolutely obliged ethically to respond. Anytime anybody asks about this stuff, I have to try to talk about it because it's so urgent. But in a way, am I doing my heart's desire right now, which is to write about something else? No, I'm doing this because this is partly where the action is, you know, and not just in a self-motivated way, but it's part of it as well. So here we are. It's all resonating, out of control.
1: And there is an ethical responsibility. I feel an ethical responsibility. I posted a meme on an Instagram story of this guy in the Senate chamber with the tag that was like, this is what happens when you cancel Burning Man. And I thought that that was funny. And I got some direct messages like, why is this the only thing that you have to say about this? And I kind of paused a little bit because my reaction is like, oh, I've been called out. You know, I, I want to start defending myself. And then I stopped and I was like, okay, well... Yeah, I mean this is not we're not fucking around. You know, we we if if those of us who are in these communities and in these worlds, festivals, psychedelics, et cetera, we need to help strengthen signals that create more discernment, as you've said. right? Yeah. So, so there's the ethical piece. And, and to add to um, what you've said and to as part of the ethical piece, I just want to give a flag to a wonderful podcast called, I think it's Down the Rabbit Hole or maybe Just the Rabbit Hole. And it was from the New York Times. I think it was kind of adjunct to The Daily, the podcast they do. It's a seven-part series. You're nodding, so I feel like you might have listened to it. But they do an extraordinary job of describing exactly what happens with internet radicalization, with QAnon, with YouTube. And so I found it extraordinarily instructive for me because I'm not in the same world and it allowed me to understand the extraordinary vulnerabilities that are exploited. So as we're we're talking today, my interest is to provide some help and support to talk about some of the, actually, the fun stuff of the occult. Let's also keep weird fun, even as we're protecting ourselves. And also, Eric, I just gotta say, catch up with you. Just
0: be here, yeah, yeah. you know? No, it sounds good. I, I, I wanna stay with, because you, I know you like the, the vulnerability, I'm gonna do a little re- reflection on the sense of responsibility. Great. And how it's, for me, is now somewhat complicated. Because while, you know, almost totally consistently, I am ultimately a voice of reason and discernment, I obviously embrace and I'm interested in lots of things that we can see now are a little dangerous. So, you know, I've always been interested in conspiracy culture. I've been drawn to things that are deluded, And I've actually, even more than that, kind of built my brand. Ugh, I can't believe I just said that naturally. I... I that was like the first time that actually ever happened. Uh-oh. I think you said it because you said brand earlier and I was thinking about it and I can't believe oh, I no. did that. I, oh no. Oh my God. See, <laughs> we're, well, we're being vulnerable here. So I'm not going to say that. I'm going to go, I established my, uh, my style partly by being incredibly like many people would critique me for being so tolerant of weird, bizarre, and even kind of dangerous crap. Like, you know, my impulse as a person, and this is like something very deep about my temperament, which is naturally diplomatic, and also wonderfully challenged and excited by the idea of trying to empathize to understand where people are coming from. And so I have like a real skill there, like if I'm Meet somebody who's really different. My impulse immediately is to try to actually model where they're coming from and to see if I can converse with them. That's just my, I like that. So it makes me a certain kind of diplomatic guy because I can kind of see where people are coming from. And then I would be doing it with all this crazy stuff. So, like, oh, you b- believe in UFOs, you believe in weird chakra systems, you're, you're, you know, down the JFK thing or whatever. And I'm just kind of fascinated because you're in these different worlds and that's part of what the whole work on weirdness is about but you know as like I said I was talking about Robert Anton Wilson and his whole 70s thing is like I realize more and more as I go over stuff I go this stuff is really kind of dangerous why and, why is it dangerous well it's it's part of what would lead to a a moment of conspirituality you know now now that we can identify it and show and know personally how many thousands, tens of thousands. I don't know how many people worldwide who were predominantly rooted in a yoga, transformative culture, festival culture, psychedelic zone, burning man zone, you know, some that large amalgam, how many people more or less, you know, went Q it's a significant number just i don't know what it is but anecdotally everybody's noticed it we've all seen it and and in, and the q shaman in a way is kind of a um you know a sign a symbol of that whole shift and and that's what even though there's um there's a lot else to talk about. Like I thought when you were when you were t- talking about someone bugging you about the the joke about this is what happens when you cancel Burning Man, which was funny. Like I saw, it, I thought it was funny too. Is I had the same thing. Like I immediately started talking about the Q shaman, like on Twitter or whatever, and people were like, "Is this all you can? You're all you're going to talk about is this weird kook?" Like when like the the you know ethno nationalists are storming the Capitol, and it was an interesting moment because I was like it made me realize, again, that question about responsibility, which is that while I have a lot of things to say about that or feel about that, that I feel like my responsibility is kind of towards this community and that therefore it's really important to highlight this aspect and to say, hey guys, we're not done with this problem. In fact, we're we're seeing the consequences of it and how serious it is now. So, what are we going to do about it you know how do we how do we kind of think about it and but i also feel not complicit exactly but i just can see and it it sounds dangerously not quite elite is not really the right word but there are there are things that are totally appropriate and creative and interesting and playful for very small groups of people who are already tuned into unusual perspectives on the world. And that when that material gets broadcast to beyond a certain level and it becomes part of popular culture, this, the very same ideas, gestures, attitudes, perspectives can really go south. And I don't want to be an elitist saying that like, oh, it was better before and people can, you know, you got to be a special person to be able to handle the mysteries But we are in a situation where the kinds of things that enabled small subcultures to sort of police themselves, even if they were being kind of crazy, like psychedelics in the 80s or something like that, where, yeah, there's a lot of people taking psychedelics. Some of them are losing the plot. Some of them are spinning out of control. But then there are mechanisms within the subculture that help people kind of Right the, the the wrongs and get get on a grounded zone or whatever. Like all of those mechanisms require something kind of subtle and kind of off the beaten path, and you sort of have to already be invested in it. And now everything is open and resonating and amplifying and feedback looping. So there are there are no longer a lot of the internal blocks and things, however poorly they worked. You know, a lot of people lost the plot throughout the whole thing or went paranoid or or whatever. And now, but all that is kind of amplified, so it, it it creates some tension in me because I'm like I'm fascinated by like the weirdness, and yet now I can say you know maybe it's just that maybe just maybe we shouldn't be talking about that so much. Maybe it's something you know maybe we should really be talking about discernment and rationality and science and what makes science science. And yes, you know, extraordinary experiences are great, but you know you don't want to go don't start drawing the lines together. Don't start you know. And in a way, that's what I was showing. It's like, look, you have a bunch of random dots and you start drawing lines between them and they make figures and then you start telling stories and then you think you are that's true. And that's a fascinating process. Let's play with it, right? That's the psychonautical, weird, experimental attitude. Let's play with the way that the mind creates realities and even go deep into it, but also kind of, you know, at the same time, maintain our distance and sort of play with it. Well, that's a kind of a weird... That's sort of an arcane practice that is, you know, ethically a little bit, a little anarchistic, maybe a little mischievous, but translate that to our current discourse environment and it looks like, you know, psyops and major trolling. Like it's it's not, the intention is different, but the way that people get drawn into these things now is, you know, has such real world consequences that I'm just not really sure How, you know, how important it is right now to like wave the flag of the weird, even though that's kind of what my beat is or what I'm interested in or have been. I mean, there's a lot of other things I'm interested in that I don't write about that's not part of, you know, what my persona is. And maybe it's time to do that. But certainly what it feels like now is how you talk about this process, these practices of discernment, what some people called, you know, nerd immunity. Like how you bring a kind of an aspect of rationality, of reason, of skepticism, of appreciation for existing authorities into a, a a sort of world where you're also, you know, experiencing all of these extraordinary states, or this upwelling of archetypal symbolism, or this whole culture of people who are p- kind of playing in a more occult, synchronistic patterned new age ascension world. Like, how do you, how do you do both? Or how do you, how do you cross that line? And I think that's maybe what you and I are trying to do now, not trying to talk to the rest of the world because that they don't, they're not going to get these terms because they don't understand how it works to be in this kind of odd culture in a way that's, you know, bigger than it used to be. That's for sure. And it's, it's not easy. That's what, so that's what we're doing.
1: Yeah, and I was I was gonna say that's what this podcast is for. Like I wanted, I don't want to, I don't want to get rid of the weird. But I want to help, I I like the term nerd immunity. For the listeners of this podcast, who are not the mainstream, um, they're people who are already interested in these spaces, how can they, A, inoculate themselves, and B, how can they talk to people around them in a way that is actually supportive and productive? And I'm thinking a lot about this, this quote that everyone loves so much, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Right, but I think you have to already have some professional chops to turn pro because the going has gotten very weird, and it seems like the weird are turning paranoid right like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i what I'm interested in is a professional approach to weirdness, a professional approach to psychedelics because for me i can I can get high on my own personal mythology in a way that doesn't I don't think it harms people other than me where I'm like oh well I did ayahuasca and I had this vision so now I've got to go on this quest and you know so I've been trying to bring personal discernment into my life anyway because you know I might just have run-of-the-mill depression right I just—I don't need to go you know climb the mountain to solve it so for me it's a smaller issue but it's the same issue it's like how can we access these extraordinary states can we get what is medicine in it can we get what's weird and playful in it can we allow it to change us in ways that we hadn't expected to be changed because we do want that we want to be changed, but at the same time, how do we protect ourselves from winding up like this this dude in the Capitol with the with the yep. Viking hat yep. on?
0: Yeah, that's. I've been thinking about that, and I and I I was actually even think you know more than I even normally do thinking about this podcast. Going like, well, I, you know, every time this issue comes up, it's like, what are the answers? And I almost feel like I need to sit down and really kind of lay out things because they're going to work for some people and they're not going to work for for other people. Here's one way of looking at it: is that psychedelics and alt- altered states in general, meditation, whatever, they teach us that the world can appear in different ways, like radically different ways. And we come back, we w- get off the pillow, we, 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 we greet the morning after, and we have now had a visceral experience of the multiplicity of reality, different ways of being in the world. What does it mean to, to live, think, make decisions, connect with people, learn, build a career, have children in a world that on some level is multiple where there's not one reference point that you can hold on to. To me, what you want to do is to cultivate a kind of inner like a superhero team where it's mm. a team. Mm. You know, like you got it. different characters and Robert Anton Wilson, I th- I think, was very good on this, in that in in, in some ways he's answering this question specifically, which he said, look, there's a lot of people in me. There's the writer, you know, working, you know, labor, right, da, da, da. There's the poet. There's the shaman, the one who has these experiences or navigates these realms. And when the shaman is leading the pack, the shaman's leading the pack, shamanic. Whatever you want to call it, in a loose sense, the psychedelic worldview, the mythopoetic world, is leading the pack. But one of the characters, one of your superhero team, is the skeptic. It's one of your it's one of your team members, and and what Wilson always said was that the thing about the skeptic is that the skeptic got veto power most of the time, and that is actually a very beautiful kind of poetic and playful way of talking about what we want. I don't want, I mean, I I have met 100% skeptics, people who are rational, critical doubters 24-7. I have zero interest in that. I even think it's a pathology. But I equally believe that not having that kind of capacity, which in some people is very cognitive, you know, it's skeptical in the sense of, philosophically questioning or understanding things about science or understanding things about bias and how cognition works. So it's kind of got an intellectual character. But there's also very much a kind of emotional uh, sense that we think of as being grounded. You know, so I think of people I know who are pretty trippy people who aren't really intellectuals, but they have this. They might not call it skeptic. They might call it grounded. And grounded is being grounded. You're like, yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah, maybe all that stuff's true, but you know, I got a cup of tea here and got to deal with my wife, and it's something about like honoring the constraints of ordinary reality, not because they're ultimately true, but because they are. They they a we're required to deal with them, but also they uh, they act as ballast against the ascension principle. So one once you kind of ex, you like this idea, you're like, yeah, inner superheroes. I got these different characters, and in a way, being who being me means passing the baton. You're constantly passing the baton to different personas who show up in different environments. You go into the, you know, you're going to a, a business meeting when you're talking about your, you know, your your salary. You're not the shaman. Sh- shut up, shut up, shaman. I don't want to get no. So that's cool then so we're then we're like passing the thing but we have to remember that 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 there is something kind of scary in this view is that, that nobody really knows nobody really has the final account and what one of the things that i think is happening with people is that on some level we all recognize that reality is just splintering whether we think about it in terms of the the way that realities filter filtered through the internet or through news agencies or through different political perspectives or different metaphysical perspectives. There's a sense of like everything unraveling and multiplying and like this kind of cancerous multiverse that is swallowing us up. And it's terrifying on some level. And one of the easiest ways to deal with it is to clamp on To a single perspective, especially if that perspective provides you with a sense of agency, a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, and provides you with a collective tribe that you now belong to that is nurturing you and and weaving you into something and giving you a collective story of purpose that's very attractive. And I think that that's part of what people get into is that as they go along and ask perfectly reasonable questions about why would I trust, you know, multinational pharmaceutical companies to come up with exactly the medicine that I need? Why would blah, 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 you know, all these kinds of questions that rather than being challenged to have to dance with your your superhero team and juggle multiple perspectives as you go forward in life honoring your spirit and honoring your body and honoring your the ordinary mundane needs of the day and the people you run into rather than that kind of whoa this is getting pretty wacky i don't really know what's going on anymore it's so much more satisfying and like thank god i know who i am i am being manipulated by The satanic pedophile rings who are multiple, you know, who are controlling all of these things and everything I hear from those channels is bullshit. Oh, that's such a relief. Thank God. Like now I finally know. I know who I am. I know who I'm fighting. I know what my purpose is. It's incredibly attractive at a time when no people are paying, nobody really knows what's going on. It's going crazy. So I would say that. If people are paying attention to their psychedelic, multidimensional, transformative experiences, they will see that it is presenting a world of multiple possibilities. And that that is asking us to transform, to grow, to learn in a way that honors the multiplicity of those worlds. And that means we have to be travelers that are capable of traveling between different perspectives, not willy-nilly, but with intelligence and craft and canniness. What is the appropriate superhero for this moment versus that moment? And I think the psychedelic experience, at least for me, has very much taught me about that pluralistic reality. So if that's true, then as soon as you find yourself starting to believe and hold on and really grip onto some story, In a way, you're already falling off the path. You're already not staying true to the expanse of the transformative experience. Now, to really embrace that, you have to kind of shift some of the ways that people think about extraordinary experience. There's still something in our culture that's like, here's what happens. I don't know anything. I'm confused. I have an extraordinary experience. At the peak of this experience, I get a message. I learn something. I find out a truth. And then when I come back down, I hold on to that desperately. And that's going to solve the problem. And that's a very ingrained part of religious culture, of spiritual culture. you know. So it's not going to go away overnight. But I don't think that's what psychedelic, how they really operate or how they really allow people to change. I don't think that's that's, I don't think that's true. So if you're holding on to something moving forward with your little secret vision or your now I know thing, you know, that's, that's not really being true to the multiplicity of the reality. It's like because the psychedelic experience is not just the peak. The psychedelic experience is you anticipating it, you taking the material. Where did you get the material? Who gave it to you? That's all part of the psychedelic experience. Coming on, that first little anxious moment, that is just as important as the peak when I'm, you know, melding with the cosmic overmind. And most importantly is the come down. Well, how do I feel on the way down? Am I disappointed to return? Am I relieved to return the next day? What's different? What feels different? Is there something to integrate? Is there something to go forward? All of that is the psychedelic experience. And to me, if you're, if you're, being true to that, that inevitably you have like, a kind of there's a kind of skepticism already in that because you know that at one moment you believe that you're a cosmic overmind, but if you're honest with yourself, there was some other point where you thought you were like part of some secret order that you were initiating. No, no that's not it. Or or no, no, no. you you could saw the way the clouds were and they they painted like a symbol. Wait, maybe actually it was like it was like from a sports team. Like what's that? You know, <laughs> there's all this like ridiculous stuff in there too, and you're like, no, no, that's not the real deal. The real deal is the one that felt like i you know i broke through and i was the one being and we were all one or whatever the cosmic vision was you know i'm not so it requires a little bit of loosening of our experiences and an enjoyment of them a willingness to let them challenge us and change us but it's more like watching a movie and less like you know, you're on the mountaintop and you finally break through to, you know, to some spiritual peak. It's like less about peaks and more about valleys. Now, maybe that's already too much to ask for, but it it seems to me that embracing the multiplicity of the experience demands that we learn how to move between different perspectives in a way that makes us very wary when we or other people are gripping so hard onto one narrative we're like ah white you're really tight or i'm really tight around this one thing let's see what it let's see what happens when i invite the whole team to take account of it and that's where you gather your your superhero team and say all right team what are we going to do with this idea that actually we're all being manipulated by evil forces using the internet and they're tracking us and the back. And then, and so, you know, the shaman might go, well, it was part of the vision. And the poet goes, well, there's some kind of, you know, there's some metaphors there that I'm not really sure about. They don't seem like the most interesting ones. And your little scientist or your skeptic or your historian or whatever is like, yeah, we've seen this before, man. I mean, you know, that's like, as a historian, it's totally obvious because this shit just keeps coming up. It's like over and over and over again. Pa- this whole history of paranoia and conspiracy theory in in the United States going back to the you know early 19th century and how it changes and the motifs arise and then collides with Christianity and then there's a new idea about the beast and then then it's the new world order and oh there's the Jews back there, the protocols. I mean it's just Historically, you can just see it, and now you just see it pop again. So, for example, just one throw one example out there, the the whole idea of the adrenochrome and and the idea that that you're like abusing children and then you're sort of reaping the chemical solutions caused by their trauma and terror, and that those are, food for the elite. Like, wow, what a great, like crazy, dark narrative, you know, like a weird dystopian vampire movie or something. Well, that's really just a transformation of very old ideas of blood libel that have to do with the Jews. And the idea that, and this is, you know, goes back centuries, the idea that Jews would abduct Christian children and sacrifice them and drink their blood. So if you know you're, if you're a poet and you know you're, myths, your figures, your, your narrative moves like a storyteller. Then you hear that one and you go, oh yeah, blood libel. Okay, well, you, got, you brought that one in. What what about the Jews? How anti-Semitic are you? And some people would be like super anti-Semitic. Oh, it's about Soros and blah blah blah. And others are like they don't really like the anti-Semitic things. They don't really they don't really deal with that part of the narrative. They deal with other parts of it. You know, oh, it's about Bill Gates. It's about pharmaceutical companies because they don't feel comfortable being anti-Semitic for good reason. They shouldn't be. But so you start to see if if you study it, you start to see what is the history of the very idea I have. I have this idea about how the world works. Where does that come from? Now, that requires you to be a researcher, but not the kind of research they mean. And how you do that, like how you don't just go back to the sources that the system wants you to look at to to re-inscribe itself and you learn how to break out and look at different kinds of sources, I don't know how to do that. That's always been the way I've been. I've been driven that way. The smart people that I spend my time with who are also weirdos, they all do that in some manner or another. They're all able to, like, put different frames around things. And it's like, no, there's a lot of them are like, no, there's a science frame about this. We don't really know what's going on. We can't make those kind of claims. But they go really far into the weird within these frames. But I don't know at this point, like, if you're talking with someone who's a friend of yours, you don't know them that well, or they're at the yoga studio, whatever, and they're just going off, you're like, yeah, you might want to look at some other stuff, and like, th- it already looks like, well, that's just more of the evil propaganda coming in. And these worldviews, these conspiracy worldviews, they, they, they are what some sociologists called epistemically closed. And what that means is, that if you bring any evidence that countermines them, that goes against the claims of these hermetically sealed worldviews, is that the worldview itself has a way of keeping all of them at bay. So if you're really in the worldview, it's very difficult for any kind of epistemic, any kind of truth claim, any kind of critical, hey, read this article instead, to bounce in. And once people are in there, and there's a lot of people in there now, it's, it's really hard to argue them out. They kind of have to want to come out, or maybe you can have some kind of emotional connection. I'm increasingly believing that the way to deal with individuals who are swallowed up is not to provide them with truth claims unless you can really get them on an intellectual wavelength where you're starting to talk about, how do we know what we know? How do we how do we build our model of reality? Once you get on that level, then you can kind of start to nudge. But if you just go, that's not true about Bill Gates. Let's let's talk about the vaccine. How could what do you mean? This study said that's that's not going to do anything. But there's something about emotions, and I'll, I'll let you talk. I've been ranting. It's perfect because I really think that a lot of this
1: comes down to trauma and powerlessness in the modern world. So I've been paying attention to Jules Evans, who wrote this article, Conspirituality, and something that he wrote was about how studies suggest that childhood trauma makes us more prone to dissociation in adulthood. And a lot of the people who are drawn towards psychedelics for healing... And as we're continuing to push that narrative, I certainly am, I push the narrative that psychedelics can be a, a potent tool for healing, that some of the people who are drawn to psychedelics are the very people who have had childhood trauma, which makes them prone to dissociation, which makes them prone to black and white thinking. And so, so we're talking about two things. We're talking about how you can support the people around you and kind of engage with them, people in your life who you care about, but also how you can protect yourself, You know, it's helpful to have that skeptic. And let's say, as part of the superhero team, we've got the skeptic. We want to load the skeptic up with the best understanding of our personal vulnerabilities, right? Mm That's you know, beautifully said. Yeah. Right. So, like if I know that I'm coming to psychedelic healing because I felt an experience of powerlessness as a child. And that's the case for me. I have these instincts. They don't go towards conspiracies, but I do have those instincts. So I want to armor my personal skeptic to say if this narrative makes you feel powerful, if it makes you feel like the hero of a story, there might be some delusions of grandeur. And for me personally, when I take ketamine, for example, I've identified that ketamine for me can have a masturbatory delusion of grandeur quality to it. I see patterns and I see myself at the center of them. And then when I come down, I'm like, God, it felt so good to feel like the world is conspiring in my favor. And yeah, if you think the world is conspiring in your favor and that makes you want to meditate more and do good acts for people, great. That's a good, good pro noic perspective but that can flip so easily. So to speak to the person who is themselves inoculating against these viruses like QAnon coming into their minds is like, what are my vulnerabilities? And when I approach the psychedelic space, I I love what you said about going in there to feel the full experience and not grab onto the peak. So common, so common for me. Oh my God, I felt the oneness. Oh, but then all the flowers wilted, and I didn't like that part, and I'm going to hold on. And integration means just hold as tight as you can. Not the case, right? So I think there's that that's protecting ourselves. And then as far as talking to others are concerned, I think that that emotional quality is part of it. I think that maybe there's an element of, we're so divisive, and we're so scared and angry in our division. You know, People stormed the capital of the United States of America. That's fucking nuts. And that's scary and that makes me angry. So I, I, I have a lot of put, I want to push against that. I want to yeah, call it out yeah. and, and put it down and all that kind of stuff. But what we really all need is the very things that people are finding in conspiracy theories. We need the feeling of belonging. QAnon is Ooh. so attractive because the QAnon community is really kind. There's a sense of intimacy and connection. People sign on to Q and they know something. We all know something and we're taking care of each other. Where goes one, go, goes all. You know, like, so when we're approaching people in our lives, our instinct is to say, oh, they fell for QAnon. They're stupid right they're or they're weak in some way weak-minded or whatever there's a there's an immediate judgment and that judgment is part of how we make how we make ourselves different than them and we're like okay well that could happen to them but never me that's like that's like poor rural american trumpist people like that could never you know but actually when we look at the vulnerabilities in ourselves, oh, I can tie it back to my own point, great. When we look at the vulnerabilities in ourselves, that actually empowers us, and when we can be with those vulnerabilities, to see those vulnerabilities in others. And so perhaps the way we talk to others when we're trying to provide those alternative viewpoints that might help them kind of move out of this kind of, this kind of hermetically sealed epistemological chamber, it is, you know, the tool is our own vulnerability, our own feeling of powerlessness, our own feeling of like wow the world 's fucked and i 'm really scared, and like meeting in that place, perhaps that 's the tool
0: yeah that makes that makes sense to me i think it, it is important to recognize one 's own potential for this and and my experience of that has to do with you know being having par- you know having had paranoid trips so i 've always been interested in paranoid fictions and You know, Philip K. Dick, and that's sort of part of my draw or Lovecraft or whatever, where there's some kind of sense like maybe I'm already inside the story and I can't get out, or there's something about that that is very appealing to me or attractive, but also disturbing. And it's very deeply woven into me. I'm sure there's, you know, psychoanalytic reasons for it or whatever. I don't have a particular take on it as being. Related to trauma or anything, but there is something traumatizing about it. It's, it's traumatic to suddenly believe that the world around you is a stage set and that it, you're being lied to. There's a trauma there, like in They Live or in a Philip K. Dick novel or something. And so there's, you know, I think that one of the features of trauma is that to try to handle it. You know, you, you develop techniques to sort of get close to it, but then keep it at bay. So there's sort of like a teasing it's relationship, a pendulation.
1: When they talk about trauma work, it's titration and pendulation. You can't heal yeah. trauma by going all the way in it. You got to touch and come back, and touch and come back. Right.
0: You know, and so I've so for me, i I mean, I've been extremely paranoid at points, like like in the in a kind of metaphysical sense, a, as well as concrete like phone calls or who's that guy looking at me or whatever. Like I've had, but brief, luckily brief periods usually related to being too high. And, uh and so I, I feel like, again, my style is to like really understand what that feels like. So I, I get it. Like I, I really don't have, I don't think that there's, I understand why people get into these head spaces and why the feedbacks are, are, are helping keep them there. And I don't know, I mean, as I'm saying, I think we're all really struggling with this is like, what's the way to deal with it? Perhaps being more connected with that and ourselves is read by the other person and there, so there's some kind of way of connecting in it. But it's difficult because it's, the, it's so divisive that we are fooling ourselves if we think that we can always be maintaining our ideals in relationship Because what it it means is that if you're actually dealing with somebody who is holding on 100%, and let's say they're in your family, and let's say they're talking to your uncle, what do you do? Do you just try to have a reasonable conversation with them? Oh, they're not being reasonable. What do you do? You actually have to cut. Your ethical job is to actually try to prevent that person from talking to your uncle because your uncle's kind of a little soft or he's going that way. So you have to cut just the way that all of us have to go, well, you know, I'm kind of an anti-authoritarian. I don't really like state power. I don't really like the police. Uh, you know, military guys, ooh, you know, remind me of jocks. I'm, it's not really my thing. Like, And then you're like, oh, they, they're over here. And now I'm like, well, you know, you go get them, you know, <laughs> go get them, capital Police Force. You know, and, and it's very difficult for a lot of us to do that but we're at that kind of stage. And so that's another side of it too, is that you also have to protect yourself and protect those around you by recognizing where the things are coming in. And there's sometimes nothing you can do about that person and their worldview, but you can try to contain them by getting to people before they're won over. So what you want to do is go, hey, now I know you're going to, it's very appealing, I understand it, but there's this too, and there's that too. And Really, if you look at it, it's kind of a game, and you know, so that's part of a, another kind of aspect of what we're doing. But I want to go back to the personal stuff because I think that's also really, really key. Is like, how do you, how do you protect yourself? Now, th- can, this raises like a. I'd like to sure. make a quick note about that because
1: sure. the value of this conversation is not simply how do we not fall into the QAnon cult. It's also how do we protect ourselves from falling victim to any number of narratives, even n- narratives that are like, well, if I just meditate enough, the world's going to be a better place and I don't have to involve myself in helping the people around me. So there's there's versions of this that are not so dramatic and not so toxic, but these same tools of being able to check ourselves within these communities and specifically Burning Man, Psychedelics, New Age, in these communities... We've all we all need this. We've always needed it yeah. because cause on various levels this is happening. So as you go into that, I just want to just flag for the listener that if you're like no way no how QAnon, I bet that there might be something that yeah you know there might be a way you lean in your the stories you tell yourself.
0: I certainly yeah think. yeah no no I mean that's fine. I mean I've, I I will never forget when I saw a a very intelligent person come back from an ayahuasca experience or set of experiences. Believing that they had contacted a a you know God alien God who was had channeled messages for them and they had written down the messages that the God had channeled and that they had a sense of messianic sense that this was their purpose going forward and I'm like, okay, you know that that can happen that happens so it's it's really not just about qnan and it's also about even more mellow ones, like you say like oh, it's just about my heart, and if I just make my heart really clean through meditation and and being sweet to myself, that's going to send out the energy, and that's going to be the light signal that allows the world to, to, you know, improve or whatever. So here's what I would what I would say. I mean, it's really hard to talk about spirituality in general because whatever it is is going to be. Different people are at different places. They have different experiences, and there's different things that work for different people. Some people need a hardcore physical practice to kind of get them into shape. You know, and other people are really drawn to meditation. Other people are drawn to, you know, a lot of things. But the, 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 one of the dangers is, is that we, 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 as we navigate this multiplicity of possibilities, we go towards what feels good, mm. but we don't necessarily go towards what we need. Mm. Yeah. And that's tough. Word. And it's a, hard, it's a hard problem. So, what, one of the ways I think of, of kind of, Becoming more mature in your practice is to accept that at some level, if you're not sometimes practicing withering self-observation, I'll get back to that phrase, withering self-observation as part of your complete balance breakfast, you are running a risk of of delusion, and frankly, of just getting stuck. So withering self-observation, what does that mean? Self-observation is a way of developing distance on yourself. It can lead to dissociation. You know, it's it, it, it can be too extreme. So I'm, I want to emphasize that, that this too, like all spiritual tools, can go too far and cause problems. And that way you have to come back to that sort of, uh, let's get the whole team involved here. Is this is this really working? But if you don't have almost alongside the skeptic, because it's not quite a skeptic. skepticism is really about claims about the world or my own beliefs about the world. But the uh, the self-observer is almost, you can almost imagine the self-observer as a kind of like a little bit of a Spock character, a little bit of a Vulcan, where you're just recognizing like, oh, now I'm scared. Or mm, when that person said that, I felt a clutching in my stomach and I want, oh, now I'm yelling at them. Oh, what does that feel like? Now I feel ashamed. That kind of like, okay, look at that, look at that, look at that. And especially when you've made a mistake or when you've fallen or when you've, you realize that you had projected a whole story onto someone that was totally not true. I mean, we all do that all the time. Like, I had this whole story. You had done that to that one person. They're like, no, it didn't happen at all. Well that's a a golden moment for the self observer to go hmm notice the way that you projected a narrative onto ambiguous events and held on to it for your own personal reasons it's not necessarily fun stuff but if you're not doing that some of the time and i don't know how you get yourself that into into your woven into your your process or protocols if you're not doing that you know Probably a good idea to start doing that, unless you have a problem with like so much self-judgment and so much uh, depersonalization already that 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 isn't helpful, and you need something very embodied or need something very emotional, whatever. You probably already have a lot of those those scripts, and it's hard because it's not the same thing as the inner critic, but it can they they share the same megaphone sometimes, so it's it's tough.
1: Well, I think that the practice of self observation, I believe, is best cultivated just in its clearest form, clutch in my belly. You know, energy of, ooh, I'm flushed. So I've personally been using a practice because I've been going through some difficult anxiety and depression. I, I get some seasonal stuff and I went through a breakup recently and my system doesn't do breakups very well. So there's a lot going on in my system. And I've been reading a wonderful book called Already Free by a guy named Bruce Tift, which is a bit on the self-helpy side of Buddhism, but I've found it to be very helpful. So I'm really liking it. And the practice that I've been working on from that book is um, to notice exactly what's happening in the physical sensations of my body. And what he says in the book is essentially that our um, neurological organization in many cases, is a way of dissociating from physical sensation in our body. So I can feel a physical sensation of anxiety. For me, that's the best term for it. It's a clutching, it's energy in my arms, it's energy in my body. Anxiety is a good word for it because it's pretty basic. That energy often will turn into the story that I'm, I'm broken in these ways and like spinning out. And what I realize is that I'm trying to battle that story. Oh, no, you're not broken, blah, blah, blah. But actually, the issue is not the story or battling the story. Even The story and battling the story are actually ways to take me away from the physical sensation of like, my system in this moment is feeling a lot of discomfort. Is this discomfort going to kill me? And so the observation, and this is, to your point of like the, making sure that it's separate from the critic because the critic is, is that's often an inherited, that's a learned voice in us. Says, so oh, don't do that. If you do that, they'll think this or whatever. But the clean observation of like, okay, how do I feel right now? I feel like the interview is going well. I, you know, like there's energy is, is in, what. so that's even a story. Actually, no, I went straight to the story. I went straight to the story. I did it just now. But I feel good. I feel yeah. alive. I feel some creative flow. Yeah. So the observation in that moment would be I feel in flow. I'm a little sped up. Okay. Maybe I can breathe a little more. So it's trying to have that, practicing that clean observation of self.
0: Yeah. I think that's really good. And I, I think part of it is about how we, how we relate with the, the stories that inevitably we tell. Like that's what our brains do, they're story mm. machines. And, you know, one of the great things about meditation, at least certain ways of doing it, is, is really being able to d- develop the space where for some moments the story stops. And then it becomes much clearer when the story com- stories come mm-hmm. back, oh, that's just a story. Yeah. I'm just, my brain is just going, weaving words together to say something about something that might happen. And I have to live in that world sometimes but it's just a story. And, and so developing that is too, is also part of self-observation in the sense of being able to, you know, and part of you can use the body as reference or as, re, as something that re, that moves in another direction than just getting caught up with the story or even fighting the story. But it's sometimes also just good to go up, ah, here, is, here is another story. And we love stories. We watch TV, we watch serials, we read comic books. We go on psychedelic experiences that have the shape of a narrative. Oh, we went through, and then we we wanted to go and meet this other thing, and then we saw this this being that was of light, and then we went after it, and it, we then we got lost again. We heard the frogs. Remember the frogs? They felt like they were giving us a signal. You know, we turn it into this sort of magical story, and so I think part of it is is that if you're if you're doing this self observing, you know, don't get caught up, return to the body. We, you also have to kind of allow and acknowledge the power of the imagination. And I think that that's a lot of what draws people to psychedelics is that rather than re- watching a movie or reading a book, I'm inside the imagination as it's telling stories that are designed just for me because I'm doing a lot of it. Not all of it. I would never say that. I think there are, are transpersonal dimensions or whatever. They're just hard to talk about and easy to hose yourself. So you step lightly. On those zones, But the parts that are more about us, great. So we part of what we're learning is also how to recognize and appreciate the imagination, but then not try to make it the truth teller. And that's a lot what's happening with, again, with conspiracy theory is that, they're good stories. We read, I mean, maybe they're not great stories, but they're like stories. They're like like that novel or like that movie or like that paranoid comic book thing or, you know, and then this. And so like the, the same part of your mind, the imagination is like drawn to even dark stories. We're, we're fascinated by dark stories that we always have been. Look at all my, how many shows have people dying in them. We watch like simulated stories of people dying all the fucking time and and we're not bad people. You know, we're fascinated by death and fascinated by sin or darkness or whatever. So that's part of our imagination. But now we're at a point where like as as truth and reality become unmoored and and sort of fragmented through this media environment and through the breakdown and consensus and the loss of authority and the elites and all sorts of different reasons, the imagination has just like all this room to run. And that's one of the problems is like sort of taking responsibility for your own imagination, which doesn't mean just thinking it's full of shit, because that's why, why are we here? We want imagination. We feel that imagination can actually help enliven the world, open it up, create more possibilities, create the ability to imagine different ways of being, different ways of relating to nature, different ways of relating to other people. You know, that's that kind of utopian side of the imagination, where it builds a world where something else can happen. I mean, that's the transformative festival. What's going on there is we're all, we walk in there, we make a tacit agreement that we are going to play act in a world that works differently, that is more magical, more spontaneous, sometimes more direct. And even if I'm just having a good time or the person next to me is on a spiritual quest, we're still operating in the same kind of like play act world. And that can just be narcissistic or just be a little, a good weekend, or it can actually be a site of transformative social imagination. And there, it's both. And that's part of what we're trying to do is, like, let's get more of the transformative social imagination stuff crystallized and moving forward as we, you know, go back to mundane reality. So we have to really kind of acknowledge and work with the imagination. But at the same time, it's just the same thing as the superheroes. It's just one facet. And if it, go, if it takes over and then it gets bound up with conviction or it gets bound up with inflation or these other psychological drivers we have because we're wounded or because we feel powerless or because we feel empty and broken, you know, that's where the self-observer goes, oh, look at that. You've, you've taken this little story. You had your nice ketamine trip. It was enjoyable. It, everything fell together. And now you're like, I want that. That's the thing. That's who I am. I'm the one who's bringing everything together. And you know, that's what I call in the in in high weirdness. I talk I talk about it as a tightrope walk. That it's actually diff. It's actually there's a subtle art of moving in these worlds that requires a sense of poise and balance and clarity and uprightness. And if you get too absorbed and too overwhelmed and too ensorcelled, even though at some points that's going to happen, then you're kind of you're not really practicing with it and. So I think that part of what we're also talking about here is just a different attitude towards practice, which is almost like even like, you know, working out where we all know about working out, like working out can be fun, but it's kind of, you know, sometimes you don't want to do it and a body's sort of lazy and it's hurts and we got to force ourselves a little bit and then we're glad we did it. You know, so you already have a sense of like things that we know we really like that aren't like super fun a lot of the time. For a lot of us, that's true on every level. That's true about self observation. It's true about working with emotions the way you're talking about. Like, oh, I haven't gonna, no, I'm gonna tune into my emotions now. That's groovy. Oh, I feel like shit. Oh, God, I'm scared. Okay, what is scared? Oh, it's this awful feeling in my stomach. And I feel really, oh, like there's no solid ground and that's no fun. Well, what are you doing? Are you running the risk of going crazy? No, you're, you're, you're working out. You're doing, you know, 30 push-ups instead of 20. It's not fun. Ah, ah, this sucks. Stop. You know, and that's true in the height of your psychedelic trip. Oh, I'm in, oh, here we are. And you're like, yeah, really? What's going on now? Where are you? Can you let this go? What if you drop it all? Where are you then? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, or scary stuff comes up. Even paranoid stuff comes up. You're like, oh, I'm in that paranoid world again. And because I've been a practicing paranoid meaning that it's just happens to me sometimes, is that I can be inside of a locked in, now you see how everything's putting together, and I'm talking in a psychoactive kind of situation, and be like, oh, it's the paranoid story thing. Okay, don't make any big decisions, don't think about it too much, look at other details, maybe return to the body, maybe move in a different way, And, you know, sooner or later, it kind of shakes off. So that kind of ability to be in, but not entirely of, to move through experience, the kind of dance between perspectives, it's a subtle art. But without it, it's so easy to get trapped in a lot of these dimensions, whether they're big scenarios like the QAnon or just sort of ordinary delusions that ultimately prevent you from really wrestling with the difficulties of our time and of ourselves and if you don't have that there's if there's not any of that grit in there if you're just like the ascension light side of things i just yeah i just don't think you're you're not getting to the heart of it it's it's so easy to to get spun out in your own stories
1: i love the idea of many-minded odysseus. So my favorite heroic archetype is Odysseus as many-minded. And I think cultivating being many-minded and being able to toggle between them that that practice is as important and in this modern climate maybe more important than your meditation practice to read other things and to actually really build up that skill. And I love, I also want to say, I love that you had a little blip on like what this podcast is about. So the podcast is Life is a Festival. We have these great experiences at festivals. How can we make, make our lives more like a festival? And that, that discernment is necessary too because making your life more like a festival is not joining the circus. It's not joining the festival circuit unless that's what you want to do professionally. It's, it's actually like, how do we take some of the magic energy and bring it into our lives? But we don't get to bring that magic energy into our lives just by holding on as tight as we can, as you were pointing out from the psychedelic trip. We don't hold it as tight as we can. We understand that we get that sometimes, and we have better access to it because we know we can get it, and we have better access to the broad experiences because when we get in the really dark times, the depression, the loneliness, the heartbreak, or whatever it is, we can see how we can move out of that too. And... That actually kind of uh, leans towards how the podcast has evolved, and the podcast has actually evolved since we did our show. Which is, I've connected with the allegory of life as a festival that was part of Pythagoras, and then the Stoic Epictetus is—they both use the allegory of life as a festival, and what they used it for was the idea that if you look at life as a festival, a it's temporary. And B, you can choose how to interact with it as this sort of spectacle that's going on around you. And what Pythagoras said was that some people go to the festival, in this case, the Olympic Games, to compete, to win something, to trade oxen, to like do commerce. But that the philosopher goes to the festival to experience the full multiplicity of being as if it is a festival life is a festival is is to see all these things in this totally alive state and so the idea that life is burning man life is not burning man you know and like that's it's, it's and it's important that it's not it's beautiful that we have burning man but it's important that it's not so Actually, the way we earn our ability to live life in a more open way is actually by having this superhero team that provides more discernment and the ability to have this kind of many minded approach and say, Ooh, yeah, a little bit of this, but uh, that's, yeah, no, no, we've gone here before, you know, and to observe that. And so let me say that I think that we have done a pretty good job of giving our listeners some ways of thinking about not falling down the, you know, the many trapdoors of conspiracy thinking and also to look at their own personal narratives. I think we've done our due diligence. I think you have done the appropriate thing you must do ethically. Now that we've done that, I believe that you, Eric Davis, are now free, if you would like, to spend our last bit of time today Talking about how fucking weird this is. And maybe we can play in a little bit of the weirdness now that we have set the table of discernment. Does that sound good to you?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's then that gets around to the to the life as a festival thing again, which is like, you know, one of the marvelous things about festivals is the the sense of, you know, another world just around the corner. Like I'm gonna mm. pull back this veil and go into a tent and I don't know what's going on. And all of our a lot of our best a ex- lot of my best experiences in festivals take that form. I'm with my crew. We're usually joking. We're not seeking. We're just having fun, being, you know, blown around by the muses or whatever. And then suddenly there's a turn. We get invited, or there's a whoa, what's through there, or whatever? And then you go in and it's and everything changes. And that sense of like multiple worlds, it's like um you know, like the Moss Eisley spaceport in, in Star Wars. And it's like, there's just all these worlds here. And so part of the festival for me is that it's a multiplicity of worlds, a pluralistic universe. And again, I'm emphasizing that degree of pluralism because I think it's actually medicine to start to learn to navigate between modes. And that if you think you're a shaman, what does a shaman do? A shaman moves through the worlds like it's there's the earth realm there's the underworld there's the sky world there's different animals there's different spaces inside the 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 wilderness where different kinds of things happen to develop that sense of openness and multiplicity because one of those tents a big one now is like the QAnon tent. And maybe you like peek in because you're curious, like, what are these guys doing? And then there's, you look and there's all these like weird graphs and scary monsters. And you're like, whoa, wow, those go okay, All right, we're going to go this way. I'll see you guys later. You know, where, but it is also part of the festival that there's weird religions there. There's cults that are, people are freaking out and they're, you know, rolling in the dust. Like that's a festival. Like the festival isn't, It's not contained. There's an element of chaos. There's an element of risk. There's an element of danger. There's an element of excess, of madness. Madness is in the festival. And the life as a festival mode is this kind of embrace of the totality of of experience and that you can't just select out the parts that you want. You don't get that lively, juicy sense if you're not risking yourself if you're not uncomfortable a lot of the time or you know any number of the other, the other things that can happen to somebody uh, you know lose their friends get lost lonely or suddenly like you don't have any connection at all and you have the the loneliest night of your life you know I've had some of the loneliest nights of my life at at Burning Man terrifying same. nights of this yeah same you know, it can be lost, a dark dark con- place can't connect to anybody and you know whatever and it's like okay well that's that's part of the festival that's not like oh I'm not in the festival anymore. It's part of the, the festival. And so one of the ways I um, how to say this like I'm I trying to embrace our moment is to feel that my own experiences as a reader, as a thinker, as a as a seeker, as a psychedelic person, as a festival person, have actually given me great skills to understand aspects of what's going on here in ways that a lot of people with different backgrounds don't see. Now they Mm. see things things that I don't see, but I'm actually very appreciative. So I am like, bring it on. Like, let's rise to the occasion. Let's go back into the archive and bring forward all of those elements that might be appropriate to understand what's what's going on here on multiple levels. So what I'm seeing here in the
1: picture you're painting bringing us to the end of our conversation today, is that there's a choice to be the QAnon shaman and to grab that single narrative with all your might and be the hero of that limited story that may well be wrong. That's a choice. A choice that you're laying out here, which really appeals to me, is still heroic, but you're not going to be the hero. You're not going to save it because it's all in play. But it is heroic. And instead of grabbing onto one thing and elevating yourself to be that heroic one story, there's a humbler heroism of doing your spiritual self-discipline, your psychedelic self-discipline, that you actually are better able to meet the myriad tasks that are overwhelming everyone at the moment. And you're able to meet them because you're nimbly toggling between different ways of looking and thinking. You're able to speak to different people. And ultimately, you're able to discern and then support boosting the signal of messages that actually are going to be more helpful to people, bring people more together, and allow us to to coordinate some responses to these massive challenges. And that's heroic. That's a heroic thing. But it's not the story of the hero. You don't get to have the story of the hero, but there's a simple heroism of doing your work so that you can best affect the world around you in a positive way, in myriad positive ways, and you can still enjoy the festival. Mm-hmm. Sounds good.
0: Well, I I feel like I feel like we covered some ground today, Eric. Yeah, I mean it was it was definitely fresh for me, you know. It's always a little risky because if it's more fresh then I don't always feel like I quite nailed it, but it's also the the journey is part of the the experiment, you know. That was one thing of being a whatever a public figure, speaker guy, is that, is that if I don't keep risking live, it's not worth it. And it means that I sometimes stumble a bit and, and it can be hard, but I really overall really appreciate the invitation to explore.
1: Well, and that's why I always want to give you a home game. It's your content to give to the world.
0: No, actually I really liked all, all of it. And, and you know it's funny, I didn't know that, you know, I've read I've read a fair amount of Greek philosophy and stuff. I never came across that festival stuff in with Pythagoras or the or or the Stoics. If you could actually send me I'll send you some yeah. sources on that because it's a really great that that move that you've made is really really important because I think that I guess what one of the aspect that I think is important about that that I I kind of alluded to but I didn't make explicit is that is that we're talking about embracing all of life and that the that sense of festival isn't mm-hmm. just like the circus party where it's just a super blast and it's not like the mundane part of your life it's like really embracing the festival is the way that the festival itself is already. It's like, it's impermanent. It's already gone. Or you look down and it's like, no, wait, the, the you know, the porta potties are leaking or the, you know, like it's the whole thing. It's like, it's the actually- The dust storm. Changed. It's the breakdown. It's, a dust it's the dust storm. Right, right. It's the, right. It,
1: it's the conflicts. I mean, it is embracing anyway. it all. And I think yeah. we did a great job and it's lovely cool. to okay. see you, Eric. Such a pleasure. Yeah. All right, man. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show, and you can suggest new guests. If you really like the show, and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at Patreon patreon/lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.